Chapter 35 of The Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. Our visit to the Infernal Palace. The Infernal Palace was a congregation of subterranean rock-hewn temples under the spiritual control of the Grand Sorcerer Chaka and the Grand Sorceress Zulisoas. The Grand Sorcerer's domain was directly underneath the Supernal Palace of Egyplosis. An ornate pagoda of stone covered the entrance to the underground palace. The descent was by means of a wide gradient of polished marble, and there was also an elevator car, beautifully decorated with electroplated sheets of gold and lit by electricity, which was the most rapid means of descent to the pavement beneath, a distance of 250 feet. The procession of twin souls and attendants who carried Leone and myself in a splendid litter of gold entered the palace by means of the inclined marble highway, whose sculptured walls were radiant with electric light. The many temples of the underground palace were devoted to the most occult worship of Harakar. There was an immense central edifice, whose roof, supported by lofty columns and sculptured in fantastic beauty, rose 200 feet above the pavement. Here, electric suns lit up what was merely the vestibule of a hundred temples, all hewn from the same pale green marble, the aquellium floors glittering like a fathomless sea. As we entered this splendid abode of sorcery, we were received by the august officials of the sanctuary. The Grand Sorcerer Chaka was a man of imperial presence, gracious and subtle. His flesh was the hue of silver bronze, and he possessed noble features. His hair was blue, and his blue beard was trimmed into a rounded semicircle on his chin, while his moustache spread nobly on either side of his lips. He wore a robe of emerald blue silk, embroidered with silver flowers. The grand sorceress, the Obul, who accompanied him, possessed the complexion of a pearl, was arrayed in a robe of celestial blue silk, and, like the grand sorcerer, wore a diadem of rubies. Our reception was extremely gracious, the grand sorcerer saying he felt highly honoured with our visit. As we passed down the palace pavement, an immense bell opened its mouth of gaunt and glorious bronze. Soft explosions of music swept in thrilling moans through temple and cloister, the echoing walls resounding with returnals of enthusiastic peace. As if inspired with passion, I could hear the bell swing and roll on its delirious pivot, uttering its deep-sounded fantasy. I saw, illuminating the sculptured archway of each temple on either side of us, the name thereof in letters of incandescent light. I saw the names Amano, Bicano, Demano, Hilano, Kilano, Pridano, Redolano, Echithono, Oximano, Giracano, Oirolano, Orfitano, Sedeshano, Padamano, Jocdilano, Nidilano, Bishamano, Odolfano, and many others, indicating the various departments of soul development to which each temple was dedicated. The sorcerer waved his wand, and suddenly a band of priestesses appeared on the pavement, moving in strange and fantastic measures. Their attire consisted of low-cut circles of bright and beautiful stuffs, with short skirts, having in front of each a sheaf of heavy folds that expanded and fell as the dancer moved. All wore jewels and rings of precious metals on wrists and ankles. Their faces, perfect in feature, were pale rose in colour, but marvellously delicate. Ranging themselves on either side of the immense aisle, they formed a delightful guard of honour for the grand sorcerer and his retinue. They were not only souls, but the materialisations of souls, that danced and sang as when on earth. They were souls of former priestesses, reincarnated by the sorcerer, and who vanished when we reached the entrance to the Temple of the Labyrinth. 
It was certainly a delicate and super-excited imagination that brought the splendid archway through which we passed into the grotto garden beyond. Neither Greek nor Moor, Hindo nor Goth, ever conceived such arquebuses as were sculptured on the walls of the entrance of the Holy of Holies. In the garden, hewn from solid stone, were interminable thickets and hedges enclosing labyrinthine walks. There were open spaces in which stood veritable trees with the strangest leaf and flower, branch and stem delicately chiselled from the solid rock. There were also acres of grass and flowers, wonderful creations of art. There were rose bushes, heavy with their eternal bloom, the flowers stained crimson as in life, and the leaves their varying graduations of green. Fruit trees with pale pink flowers and leaves light and dark green stood amid the green grass that never wavered in the breeze. An immovable streamlet ran down its bed of carved irregularities between flowery banks and underneath a bridge formed of a single arch. I looked up expecting to see the sky, but my gaze met the solid heavens of stone and I knew again I was in a cavern. The feeling was somewhat suffocating. The garden was lit by an electric sun in the centre of the roof, 200 feet overhead. The pathway, wide enough for six people abreast, led by labyrinthine dells to the pagoda of the sorcerer, which stood in the centre of the garden. The mazes of the pathway were so numerous that none save the initiated when once in the labyrinth could find their way out again. It was a weird experience to find myself walking between the master twin souls of that subterranean palace, exploring its many mysteries. We arrived in due time at the entrance to a mighty temple at the further side of the labyrinth, whose bronze door suddenly opened to receive us, and the sorcerer bade me enter. Passing through a pillared porch, we entered a wide and lofty space, lit by tall windows and a roof of many-coloured domes of glass that threw wonderful sights on the polished aquilium floors of the building. The light that shone through window and dome was produced by myriads of electric incandescent lamps that glowed in recesses of the rock behind each window. This was the inmost shrine of the sorcerer. As I walked toward the centre of the mysterious temple, the sorcerer inquired if creative magic was cultivated on the outer sphere. I informed the sorcerer that necromancy, divination, magic, clairvoyance, esotericism and theosophy were things known and practised in many countries. But, I added, the idea there is that of self-abnegation, and miracles are only to be performed by ascetics who practice the most rigid austerities. Men who desire to possess occult power live in complete solitude, subjecting themselves to cruel mortifications. They abstain from all fellowship with their kind. They try to live even without food. They absolutely mourn existence, avoiding all contact with everything earthly. They hope by renouncing all actions of life to enter more and more into the spiritual existence. They believe they can build up an enormous soul out of the ruins of the body. Do you find that such a method produces a high development of creative power, love, justice, conscience, truth, temperance, order and benevolence? said the Grand Sorcerer. I cannot say, I replied, that the devotees to whom I refer are conspicuous for those qualities, certainly not for a highly active state of such qualities. Their abnegation develops fanaticism, which is intemperance itself, and fills them with hate towards those outside their creed. The starvation of every appetite of pleasure withers up the appreciation for every form of human delight. Then what virtues are derived from ascetic practices? inquired the sorcerer. Certain virtues of a negative order, I replied. The adepts claim to have power to create and transport matter. 
a claim which reliable history does not, except in a few cases, recognise, and in a very limited sense they have power to separate soul from the body, while the body remains in a comatose state, the soul traverses space, holds consultation with similar souls, and returns to its mansion in the body again. Your magicians, said the sorcerer, weaken or kill the body without imparting corresponding power to the soul. Now we of Atvadbar believe that the body should be developed equally with the soul. We believe that contact with the noblest and best of earthly things develops power and beauty. We feed both body and soul on the perfection of things, that both may thereby absorb perfection. In the brilliant activities of the supernal palace, and in the golden calm of the infernal palace, priest and priestess as twin souls naturally intermingle in the enjoyment of a long nirvana of ecstasy. We have not only the occult power to perform miracles like the ascetics of the outer sphere, but the soul possesses an enormous development of every noble quality, without which our golden century is impossible. We are able, by means of our baths of life, to obtain a hundred years of glorious youth, during which period age and decay of the body is suspended. Our devotees, when they arrive at the age of twenty years, when youth is fully developed, begin their nirvana of blessedness and love. They do not grow older during these years. The eye is as bright, the pulse is as bounding, the heart as lively, the complexion as pure and lovely, the feelings as fresh at the end of the interregnum as at its commencement. Then, when the golden century is exhausted, the body begins to be twenty-one years old. Do you mean that a man who has lived one hundred and thirty years is but thirty years old? I inquired. Precisely, said the sorcerer. Why should we call a period age in which there is no change? Do all souls live until their century of youth is accomplished? Not all souls. Many die of accident or in consequence of sin. With some, Nirvana consists of but a single day's felicity. With others, a month or a year, up to a hundred years. It is the ideal for which we strive, and there is no reason why the body should not live one thousand years as well as one hundred, when vitality becomes more developed. I was astonished at the remarks of the sorcerer, and yet I remembered the case of Adam, Noah and Methuselah. I told him that men on the outer sphere had lived almost one thousand years. You may be sure they never practised the austerities of the ascetic life you have just mentioned. They must have enjoyed life, always turning their faces to the sun. I think one hundred years is a great step towards immortality, I remarked. At twenty years the body is developed, but even a hundred thousand years will not develop the soul. Think of the development involved in having power over disease and death, power to create substantialities of matter. Do you create matter? I inquired breathlessly. I will show you what we can do, replied the sorcerer, if you will follow me. The sorcerer led the way to seats upon a platform of silver, on which stood in terrific grandeur the figure of a herent or dragon of gold, whose eyes were blazing rubies. He stood before the dragon, at least twenty feet above the pavement of the palace. Presently the sorcerer shouted with a loud voice, My host! My host! And at once several thousand twin souls thronged into the immense temple, dancing with naked feet on the polished aquellium pavement. Beneath the monster, miles of wire were wound in a coil, and to the wire were attached twenty thousand fine wires of terellium, each wire terminating in a terellium wand. These wires were held one by each priest and priestess, who began to move in a strange dance on the pavement, and sing an anthem to Harikar. 
as they moved more and more rapidly the clamour of bells arose and explosions of sound like bullets rained upon the drums shook the building in the semi-darkness the body of the herent seemed to quiver and as i gazed lo a showering of blazing jewels issued from its mouth there were emeralds diamonds sapphires and rubies flung upon the pavement scintillating with fire the colours of the stones themselves the sorcerer waving his terillion wand shouted hold it is enough and the seance was at an end he received the jewels that had been collected by his hierophants and descending offered me a splendid ruby as large as a hen's egg i looked at him with awe as i felt its size and weight he simply said these jewels have been created by spirit power do you i gasped with a feeling of mingled exultance and fear do you create matter the abnegation of hopeless love is the source of the spirit power by which we create matter such as this replied the sorcerer the twin soul is the cell that generates the creative force and can you create other matter than jewels i inquired eagerly the sorcerer gazed at leone for a moment who had been strangely silent in the presence of her most powerful spiritual coadjutor and then replied yes we can create all things if necessary we can for example create islands in the sea with mountains forests lakes valleys winding walks and thickets of flowers palaces and pagodas i was breathless with excitement at such a reply oh that i could see such an island i rejoined and tread if but for a single hour its ecstatic shores you can both see it and walk upon it if the goddess so wills it replied the sorcerer what is the command of your holiness he inquired i would like the commander to see argeals if your priests and priestesses are willing to perform the necessarily arduous ritual involved in its creation replied leone my hierophants replied the sorcerer are only too happy to serve their goddess at all times and i will at once command them to prepare to execute the ritual for creating the magical island of argeals your devotion said leone fills me with the purest joy as we conversed the large ruby i held in my hand had grown considerably less in size as though the elements of which it was composed had to a degree evaporated as unseen gases so that in a short time the jewel might wholly disappear the sorcerer anticipating an inquiry as to its disappearance stated that all objects created by spirit power could only be maintained in their full material splendour so long as they were sustained by the power that gave them birth the creations were not additions to already existing elements they were simply focalizations of matter from the elements of the surrounding world held together by the force that withdrew them from their normal habitat as long as the spirit power remained supplied the jewels would in a few hours cease to exist because they were not enfolded with the power that produced them as to your magical island said i addressing leone one of whose titles was princess of argeals where is your principality situated it is located anywhere in the wide sea said leone do you mean to say said i that argeals is not a real veritable island of the ocean but only a ghostly island a mirage that retreats as we approach it a fantasy of the imagination argeals is a real island with real rocks and waterfalls lakes and forests birds and flowers there is a real palace and all the appurtenances of an ideal life all this is a materialization of the ideal desires i was astonished at her reply once called into being i inquired how long can the island exist so long as the twin souls support it by never-ceasing ecstasy so long as they perform their magical dances on the aquelian floor of the temple of the dragon holding in their hands the terellian wands 
Once the island becomes materialised, it requires thousands of twin souls to sustain and preserve its reality, and it only vanishes when the twin souls are utterly weary of their ecstasy. And when the twin souls grow weary of their joys, what becomes of the island and its glories, I inquired. It can preserve the island for a long time, said the sorcerer, by having fresh dancers take the place of those that are exhausted. But after the lapse of a month or longer, when all are utterly vanquished with fatigue, the spirit power becomes exhausted and the island disappears upon the sea. I rose and enthusiastically grasped the sorcerer by the hand. Ah, dear sorcerer, said I, will you show me this magical island? The command of the princess of Argeels, he replied, will be obeyed. End of chapter 35